Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko, and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, security experts from Cameroon and Nigeria meet in Yawunde, and four women and nine children have been released by LIA rebels. In economics, Unilever Malawi is closing down its business operations, and in sports news, FIFA presidential candidate proposes a 48-team World Cup. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Mali's government and rag-led rebels have agreed to cease hostilities as a way to ease tensions while they hold UN-sponsored peace negotiations. The deal, which calls for an immediate halt to hostilities and provocations, has been signed by the rebel coalition, including Tureg MNLA and Arab AAA groups, as well as the Mali government and a pro-Bamako alliance. Bamako and rebel groups agreed last year to a preliminary roadmap set out for talks. Britain says the weapon sanctions on Libya will be removed if a united government is established in the country and the world supports it. British Foreign Secretary Philip Hammond made the remarks after Libya called on the United Nations Security Council to remove the armed sanctions on the North African country to help its military fight the militants operating there. In an address to the council, Libya's Foreign Minister Mohamed al-Dahari called on the international community to help Libya build its national army, saying it would come through a lifting of the embargo on weapons. UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has warned that the emergence of a new generation of transnational terrorist groups is a grave threat to international peace and security. Ban was addressing a summit on countering violent extremism convened by President Barack Obama and Washington, D.C. He described extremist leaders as pretenders, criminals, gangsters and thugs on the fringes of the faiths they claim to represent. Ban says their victims are as diverse as humankind itself. Let us recognize that the vast majority of the victims are Muslims across a broad arc of upheaval and distress. Women and girls are subject to appalling systematic abuse, rape, kidnapping, forced marriage, sexual slavery, and other unspeakable horrors. No cause or grievance can justify such crimes. Masses are expected to protest in the city's capital, Maseru, today when the Constitutional Court hears an application in which the Attorney General is suing King Litsia III and Prime Minister Tom Tabane. Tabane advised the King to appoint the President of the Court of Appeal. However, the Attorney General says the advice was unconstitutional because coalition partners in Cabinet were not consulted. The protesters say regardless of the circumstances, the King's decision should be respected. Ndakwa Nagatane reports. 
NGOs say it is a constitutional crisis and analysts call it a conundrum that an office mandated to defend the state is suing the state. Last week, thousands filled the streets leading to court wearing traditional dress and t-shirts with the face of the king and the campaign is called Hands Off Our King. Three judges from South Africa sitting as a constitutional court will hear the case in an urgent application. In a first for Lesotho, cameras will be allowed in court and the feed will be beamed to the masses expected outside court on screens. And finally, South Africa's president, Jacob Zuma, has replied to the State of the Nation debate, emphasizing race relations, contract employees, as well as instability at the top level of crime fighting. Zuma has reassured Afrikaans-speaking South Africans that there will always be a place for them and that the government does not intend to exclude them from the development of the country. He has also said that democratic institutions, including parliament, are solid. Zuma says government is looking into the matter of senior positions in institutions that fight crime. He says this is a concern for government as their priority is to fight crime. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time. And you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Friday, February the 20th, the 51st day of the year 2015, with 314 days left in the year. Four women and nine children have been released by rebels of the Lord's Resistance Army, LRA, and are returning to their families in South Sudan, Congo and Uganda. One woman was only 12 years old when she was captured and taken to the Democratic Republic of the Congo by LRA rebels. She bore three children during her 13 years in captivity. The women and children were recently handed over to South Sudanese authorities in an emotional ceremony where they also mourned the loss of those who did not survive. Felix Kati reports. 13 years after abduction, the mother and her three children were handed over to South Sudanese authorities. The handover ceremony took place at Nebepai Boma at the border with the Democratic Republic of Congo in Yambia County, Western Equatorial State. Government and United Nations officials from both the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan witnessed the occasion. Major Vadim Chize the in charge of disarmament, demobilization and reintegration in Congo's Dungu town, headed the delegation and presented the abductees. So we had around four uh, women and nine children. Uh, so uh, already Congolese was uh, resettlement in the family of origin. So Ugandese family uh, went and repatriated to Uganda. And now, right now, we have a South Sudanese family that we are going to repatriate to South Sudan. The process is already underway to trace her family in Kaujikeji County. Just a day before her handover, the people of Gangura Payam in Yambio held a remembrance service for community members who have fallen victim to attacks by the LRA. John Kuzer, 
is the commissioner of Yambio County. There yesterday we had a, a communal morning in Gangurapayam that was organized by Reconciliation International and the church-based organizations where all the victims who in one way was abducted by the LRA or who lost a relative due to LRA incident. While it is part of a mourning process, a communal mourning process, today we are delighted that we are receiving four of our South Sudanese citizens here. And we are grateful that you found these people, you took care of them, you protected them, and you are handing them over uh, to our hands. Kose also urged populations to welcome the former abductees back to their communities. We have been informed that there are former LRA abductees who come out in Congo. Not all of them are handed over like uh, Rose Giden who has been brought with her children. We, we are told that some of them are integrated or they are placed in foster care families where they are used as uh, domestic uh, uh, laborers. The issue of LRA is not planned for and uh, nobody uh, wants this to happen. If you know of former LRA abductees from South Sudan who are integrated in some of these foster uh, care families and they are being used as domestic workers. Please trace them, bring them back to us. We need them. He's speaking on behalf of the Western Equatorial State Government. The Speaker of the Legislative Assembly, Baje James, expressed his gratitude to the Government of Congo and the United Nations. We are happy to welcome back four of our belongings. And uh, we really want to thank you very much for bringing them back alive. I want to thank the government of Congo. I want to thank the UN and all the NGOs that are here for accompanying these innocent children. Our lady, you are welcome with the children. We will pick you with all our hands, take care of you and the trace and see where you came from and give you back to your family. You enjoy South Sudan as we enjoy and uh, be happy. Thank you very much. I am Felix Francis Ketia reporting from Nebia Pai in Yambio. Let's go back in time to today. In 1992, South African President F.W. de Klerk announced a date for a referendum to establish the opinion of white voters towards his political reforms. 69% of white voters voted in favor of his reforms and showed support for multi-party negotiations. Let's listen to President de Klerk. After thorough consideration... The decision was taken that the announced referendum for voters of the House of Assembly would be held on Tuesday the 17th of March. The wording of the question to which voters will have to respond with a yes or a no is the following. Do you support continuation of the reform process which the state president began on the 2nd of February 1990 and which is aimed at a new constitution through negotiation. It is my conviction that it is a reasonable question which offers the voters a clear and unambiguous choice. There are two clear political mainstreams among the whites. There are those who associate themselves broadly with the necessity of a new negotiated constitution. 
A constitution that will eliminate discrimination on the basis of race and offer all South Africans democratic participation. But also a constitution which will offer adequate security in respect of the maintenance of important values, which will be able to protect certain vested rights and which will prevent any abuse of power effectively. Those who feel this way will be able to say yes without reservation, even though there may be important differences about details among them. And then there are those who still wish to seek a solution in one or other form of partitioning South Africa into sovereign states linked to ethnic and or racial diversity. They will wish to say no to the current reform process on which the question is focused. And that was former South African President F.W. de Klerk speaking on this day in 1992. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, It's 8.13 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Security experts from Cameroon and Nigeria meeting in the Cameroonian capital, Yawunde, have decried increasing crime wave and the proliferation of weapons in their respective countries as a result of Boko Haram terrorism. Channel Africa's Mugi Kinziger reports from the Cameroonian capital, Yawunde. The head of the Nigerian delegation at the meeting, Major General Samuel John Babatunde, says relations between Cameroon and Nigeria have been strained by security threats from the terrorist group Boko Haram. The group Babatunde says has killed tens of thousands of people and displaced millions, especially in northeastern Nigeria and northern Cameroon, that share a common border. He says such terrorism has led to the proliferation of war weapons and little arms that the Cameroon-Nigeria Cross-Border Security Committee should work out strategies to handle. This committee is not only concerned with tackling the nefarious activities of the Boko Haram sect, but it is also mandated to resolve a number of issues which affect the overall security along our common borders. Last month, Cameroon's military said it had discovered huge consignments of war weapons buried on its border with Nigeria. It also reported that individuals were using light weapons for self-defense in areas under regular attack by the Boko Haram fighters. Cameroon's Minister of Territorial Administration and Decentralization, René Emmanuel Sadi, says the militant group has rendered farmers and cattle ranchers on the border between the two countries very poor by killing and stealing thousands of cattle, sheep, goats and food. He says trade between the two countries has stagnated. The advent of Boko Haram, you know the situation in the north of our country and in the northeast of Nigeria with uh, the presence of Boko Haram and the atrocities of Boko Haram of course has caused a lot of prejudice 
we are about to, uh, first of all, examine, to assess the uh, implementation of the recommendations which were taken by the head of state, by uh, our ministers concerning the strategies to face this threat that we have in uh, our border. But we will still focus on smuggling. We will uh, also have to uh, deal with uh, customs. We will certainly have to do with transhumans of uh, cattle, banditry, piracy. All these uh, uh, questions are important and we will uh, assess where we are in the implementations of the recommendations within uh, the different uh, sessions that we have held between our two countries. Of course, I will agree Buhu Aram is one of uh, the focus of our uh, meetings, but we know that uh, so many things are being done to eradicate uh, Boko Haram and after Boko Haram we will uh, work for the progress and the development of our countries and this will be the major concern of our committee. The experts have been examining how to work together and reduce the increasing crime wave and terrorist activities threatening the development of the two countries. They say they are counting on the deployment of the over 8,700 troops announced early this month by Nigeria and its neighbors Chad, Cameroon, Niger and Benin to crush the militants without which disease, poverty, food and humanitarian crisis will continue along their borders. They have also called for additional food aid to people displaced by Boko Haram. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yawundi. Mine clearance takes time and money and the UN agency that's leading global efforts against the deadly ordinance says it needs nearly 300 million US dollars to carry on with its work. UNMAS has identified 23 countries and territories which require its help urgently with 175 ongoing projects. UNMAS Director Agnes Machialu tells Daniel Johnson that countries such as Afghanistan are close to becoming mind-free, but this can only happen with continued international support. When peace comes, the landmines do not recognize peace and they continue to kill. We need $296 million to support 23 countries and territories. This is not much in the grand scheme of things. Mine clearance remains the big chunk of the funding that is needed because it's expensive. It takes time depending on the terrain where we work, the conditions, the security condition as well. Victim assistance is also an area that needs more support. It is very important for us at UNMAS to ensure that victim assistance goes all the way to the reintegration of victims into their society. So 20% of these 296 million have been secured so far, and it is very, very important that we make noise around that issue and that everybody understands in the donors community that you will not have any safe return of displaced populations and refugees if the terrain remains contaminated. And this is not an impossible issue. It is just a matter of money. The more money, the more teams, the more teams, the faster progress will be made. 
Absolutely, and of course we wish you the very best of luck and speedy progress on this, but in the sense that you're getting money from one hand, are the governments helping you on the other hand? There is a compact that needs to be sealed at the beginning of our partnership. We are two to uh, in that task, and the government has to demonstrate some traction, some engagement. They need to put something in to show that they are right. We also need to show and, and help them comply with the treaties they have joined. And if they have not joined these treaties, we make it as a whole, the United Nations as a whole, we make sure that they are taking the right action to join uh, the treaties that ban the weapons, that they stop the manufacturing, they stop importing. Because you're right, it would be um, you know, meaningless to expend so much energy, effort, to put my own team at risk. We are in the front lines of what we do, and we will not do all of this if the country misbehaves, so to speak. Final question to you. You said there was some progress and, in fact, good news coming out of Afghanistan. Can you give me a bit more on that? Afghanistan has cleared 75% of their territory. 25% remain. It's an Afghan program. They are outstandingly good and committed. Afghanistan has prepared a wonderful praised business plan to finish clear Afghanistan by 2023 at the latest. They're working hard. We need to help them with the money. We do not want to see Afghan deminers well-trained, lots of skills and discipline. We don't want to see these young men unemployed with the skills they have in handling explosives. That surely would contribute to the economic recovery of the country if we could continue to employ them. And today we are laying them off because we cannot pay their salaries. That was Anmas Director Agnes Machialo speaking to Daniel Johnson. The humanitarian situation of people in Ukraine affected by the ongoing conflict in the country has been described as precarious by the UN's World Food Programme, WFP. The food agency is scaling up its emergency operation in eastern Ukraine to feed close to 190,000 vulnerable people displaced by fighting. It's also trying to reach civilians trapped near the front lines. Abir Atefa is based in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, for the World Food Programme. She was speaking to Nikola Krastev. The humanitarian situation deteriorated over the last few months, especially in Donetsk and Luhansk, and with people fleeing their homes, taking refuge with extended family shelters, rented apartments, so it's a very difficult situation. We are distributing food uh, assistance in two forms. In the areas where the fighting is ongoing and basically near the front lines, we are giving families a box uh, of food that has the basic food commodities like, uh, you know, pasta, rice, beans, vegetable oil, wheat flour, which is enough for one person for one month. But in the areas where uh, the markets are still functioning relatively and it's, uh, you know, more stable than near the conflict line, we are distributing food vouchers. Um, The vouchers can be used and redeemed in local stores, in the supermarkets in the area, 
and families can, uh, you know, uh, use them to get what they need from the food supply. There are issues of access, issues of the ability to move uh, food from one area to the other, which is what we see in all armed conflicts. And uh, can you tell us about the food vouchers? Are they being accepted everywhere in the supermarkets, in the food stores, or are there like some restrictions? What is actually what people report about those food vouchers? Uh, the food vouchers are distributed to these displaced families in the Donetsk and Luhansk region, but in the relatively stable areas. And we have vetted and working with a number of supermarkets. Uh, so not every place you can redeem these vouchers, only the approved stores. Uh, every family will get uh, a food voucher for $45 per person per month, and they can go to the supermarket and get what they need uh, from the food supply. So how much can you buy today with those $45 food vouchers compared to like two or three months ago, and how people are reacting when they get the same amount of, uh, you know, of money, basically? Um, well, the food vouchers are calculated in a way so that the families will get the basic food needs and the basic uh, calories that you know a person would need to have a healthy life. So it's not supposed to get someone everything that they need. So they might be able to substitute the expensive items like meat, for example, for a cheaper type of protein. But it's true that the prices have increased dramatically over the last few months. Just to clarify, WSP will distribute three rounds of food vouchers. So it's not supposed to be something that people will depend on every month, but for the next few months, people will get this three rounds of food vouchers. You guys are going to increase the food assistance in the next few months. So can you give us an idea how this is going to be done and what it will involve? Over the next few months, the will increase its assistance, uh, including this one-off distribution of locally procured food to over 100,000 people who are in mainly in besieged areas where access is limited and food supplies have dwindled. And this is to meet the urgent food needs. In the relatively stable areas with functioning markets and an influx of displaced families, there will be distribution of three rounds of food vouchers for around 80,000 people of the most vulnerable ones, mainly the elderly and female-headed households. This operation is intended to go until June. If the situation continues to deteriorate, there will certainly be another evaluation for food assistance in these affected areas in Ukraine. That was Abir Atefa from the WFP in Ukraine, and she was speaking to Nikola Krastev in the capital, Kiev. While major advances have been made in almost every area of the response to HIV, progress for adolescents is falling behind. Adolescent girls, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, are currently the most affected. To address this problem, leaders from around the world met in Nairobi, Kenya this week where President Uhuru Kenyatta launched a new platform which will help address one of the most pressing gaps in the AIDS response. For more on this initiative, Jane Matebula spoke to Chris Collins from the Joint United Nations Programme on HIV-AIDS, UNAIDS. Well, HIV is a serious concern among adolescent girls. You know, there were about 250,000 new HIV infections among adolescents in 2013. Two-thirds of those infections 
were among adolescent girls. AIDS is now the leading cause of death among adolescents in Africa and the second most common cause of death across the world. So this is a serious, serious problem. It's clear we need to use a multiple of evidence-based tools to reach girls with services that can help them protect themselves from infection. And also we need to do a much better job of getting them into treatment if they're living with HIV. So I think what we need to be doing is acting on a whole variety of fronts, scaling up quality HIV testing and treatment and care, but also use a range of HIV prevention tools and options. You know, there's a few innovative approaches to HIV prevention, particularly for young women and girls that we're looking at, cash transfers, for example, in some cases pre-exposure prophylaxis, certainly targeted evidence-based health and sex education materials. So I think there's a variety of things that we can do if we're willing to really confront the challenge of adolescent HIV head-on. Why is it that girls are the ones mostly infected with HIV as compared to boys, as research shows? What makes them more vulnerable? I think there's a whole variety of factors. I'm not the expert on that question, so I'm going to leave that to others, I think. But one factor is having sexual relationships with older men, economic disempowerment, which leads to greater vulnerability because it's harder to insist on condom use, harder to insist on protecting yourself and what you want in a sexual setting, harder to say no to sex. So I think there's a variety of social realities that make young women and girls more vulnerable. What that means for us in the All In campaign uh, and in tackling HIV among girls and adolescents is that we need to be acting on several fronts. We need to be delivering the public health interventions like treatment and testing and prevention that work, but we also need to be thinking about the social climate. We need to be acting against intimate partner violence. We need to be taking on policy issues like arbitrary age restrictions on sexual and reproductive health services. So we really need to address the overall situation in which young women find themselves in addition to getting them public health tools. You mentioned earlier on that there are few innovative approaches to HIV response for young people, right? Now, UNAIDS and its partners have launched a new platform called All In to help deal with the problem. Explain in short, how exactly will this initiative attempt to improve the HIV response among adolescents? So All In was launched earlier this week in Nairobi, and it's really a platform for action and for collaboration among many different partners. It brings together UNICEF and UNAIDS, WHO, the World Health Organization, the PEPFAR program from the United States, the Global Fund, MTV Staying Alive Foundation, and young leaders from around the world. And really what we want to be doing through All In is not reinvent anything or copy or duplicate other efforts that are already going on because there's a whole variety of really great things that are being done to reach adolescents uh, in HIV. That includes a new project called DREAMS from the PEPFAR program that's just been launched. The Global Fund is looking at several things in this area. So there's a variety of things going on. What we want to do through All In is provide a platform to talk about all the broad issues there. What does the evidence say about what works and what we really need to bring to scale? What does the epidemiology tell us about where we need to be focusing in terms of population and location? But then also, as I was saying before, 
what are the social issues that we need to be grappling with, the policy issues, the access to accurate educational information, the social protection that can help young women, for example, protect themselves and stay in school and therefore have more prevention options. All in wants to bring all of those things together, identify good efforts that other partners are doing, identify innovative programs and encourage them being brought to scale. But we also want to act on, on several other fronts. One thing we want to be doing through all this, for example, is working with local partners to take a close look at adolescent-related HIV programming in many different countries. Take a look at our services being delivered strategically, funding being used for maximum impact. Is the funding around HIV for young people really following the epidemic? So we're getting the services to those young people that are most at risk. Those are the kinds of questions we want to be asking and working with local partners in terms of making sure their national programs are as strategic as possible. Crucially, we want to be engaging young people as agents of change. They're going to have to own this and run with this agenda if it's really going to make the change we need. They can be involved in advocating for policy change, for improving the kinds of educational services they get, for driving demand for services that we know work. A third thing is we just want to shine a light on the need for better data. You know, in many countries, we just don't know enough as much as we should about the number of young people who are infected, how HIV infection among adolescents breaks down between young men and young women, the percentage of adolescents living with HIV. And that was Chris Collins, spokesperson for the joint UN program on HIV-AIDS, UNAIDS, on the line from Geneva, Switzerland, speaking to Jane Matibula. It's 8.33 Central African time and our headlines up next with Ad Musa. Good morning. The military of Niger kills 11 suspected members of Boko Haram in the country's western central state. Britain says the weapon sanctions on Libya will be removed if a united government is established in the country. And Mali's government and Tureg-led rebels agree to cease hostilities as a way to ease tensions while they hold UN-sponsored peace negotiations. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. The education sector in Rwanda is one of the fastest growing sectors. Twenty years after the genocide, the sector has seen drastic increases in universities and higher learning institutions. In return, the labor market in Rwanda is equally flooded by job seekers with employers raising questions over professionalism and competence. Recent research by the Higher Education Council showed that graduates on master's level lack the required skills for the job market. Silvanas Karamera has more from Kigali. The drastic increase in numbers of universities in Rwanda from just one university in 1963 to about 30 today is undoubtedly given a special accolade. It goes in line with the government's roadmap of economic growth, human resource capacity being at the center. Rwandans of all walks of life seem to have already embraced this call and throwing these universities in big numbers. However, the proportion in enrollment and job availability have since been discrepant. Fresh graduates 
seeking jobs for the very first time are blindsided by the realities of the labor market. This is Johnny Uineza with a master's degree in international relations. The job market is flooded. We have many people who are trying to get into the job market. We have people who, are, who have either capacity, but because of some other factors like nepotism and other, uh, other issues which are behind the curtain when it comes to employment, so not all people are going to get the opportunities they, they are supposed to be getting. When it comes to job adverts, you find that in most cases you'll be asked for 10 years' experience. How do you expect someone who is out of the college just immediately to be holding that experience? It's impossible. There need to be some, some ease of conditions for people who are applying for jobs. A recent survey on graduates' competence and employment commissioned by Rwanda's Education Council revealed that 45% of master's degree holders are unemployed. The survey attributed unemployment and unemployment to lack of sufficient skills for job placement. However, the executive director of the Higher Education Council, Dr. Innocent Mujisha, believes the focus should instead be placed on the relevance of the graduate skills on the job market. 45% of what the study covered who are holding master's degrees are not being utilized to their full capacity. And deeply what it means again is either they are being employed in jobs that do not necessarily need a master's degree or that they are being employed and not paid for the master's degree. And again, we, need, we have to know that actually a paper that is not the one serves the purpose of relevancy. It is the competencies and the skills the whole of the master, master's degree has. At the same time, lecturers, students and employers are blamed for going against the curriculum for higher learning institutions. Aharon Mutwiri is a lecturer at Akigali Basel University. I think this day time actually. People get very concerned about what is happening in class. So if you have MBA finance and the Maybe you have no idea about reconciliations and what, you know, people will be very worried. These skills, I know they are lacking, but uh, here I only blame the universities themselves mm -hmm. because these are the ones who, how did these people pass the exams? How did they do their defenses and, and pass all the way? You know, you expect like somebody who is a master, master of business, master of something. He's, it means he has mastered it, he has internalized it, he can do a PowerPoint presentation, he's an expert, he can even be consulted on, on that area. So I believe lack of skills... It is a weakness of the universities themselves. Employers, on the other hand, are said to turn away graduates without experience, which frustrates the fresh job seekers who end up jobless for years. The survey also faulted employers for underpaying master's holders, setting that 32% bachelor's holders are in the same bracket as master's holders between 250 and $500 US dollars as a monthly salary. Employers claim graduates are increasingly going after college degrees and tend to forget about merit or performance. Johanna Kalimba is a human resource manager at a software developing company in Kigali. Well, for this company, graduates are given an opportunity to prove themselves and the ability to execute the given task at hand. Graduates who are able to work under less supervision, this means that the individuals can actually perform uh, this proves ability to execute theoretical knowledge to real-life job situation. 
the Rwanda Higher Education Council says the survey was conducted to reduce the relevance of the products of Rwanda's education system in the last 10 years. The council is now positioning itself to tighten the loop against institutions of higher learning to ensure graduates are well equipped with the skills needed for job placement. In the meantime, the Rwandan government has set an ambitious target of creating 200,000 jobs annually by the year 2017. Silvanus Kalemera reporting for Channel Africa from Kigali. Greenpeace Belgium is calling for immediate checks of nuclear power plants worldwide. This follows the discovery of thousands of additional cracks in critical components of two Belgian nuclear reactors. To find out more on this, Wandile Kalipa spoke to Eloi Glorieu, energy, energy campaigner for Greenpeace Belgium. Two eminent material scientists have spoken out three days ago that the cracks found in two nuclear reactors in Belgium, the, uh, the origin of those cracks could be hydrogen, which comes into the steel, and there causes the embrittlement of the steel of the reactor pressure vessel. They also stated very clearly that this problem went beyond the specific situation of those two reactors and could probably be a serious problem for all reactors worldwide. So that's why, at the same moment then, the director of the Belgian nuclear regulator called upon all the nuclear regulators worldwide to do the inspections of their reactor vessels to see if this problem also exists in other reactors worldwide. This problem on both Jewel 3 and Tihanga 3 reactors, is it the first time that cracks have been found in critical components of the two Belgian reactors? Well, no. The problem was discovered for the first time in the summer of 2012. And consequently, the reactors have been closed immediately when they discovered this problem for almost one year. And during this year, they did a lot of tests to investigate whether it was reasonable to reopen the reactors, yes or no. Because, of course, a reactor vessel is a crucial safety part of a nuclear power reactor. If a reactor vessel bursts, then this means that radioactivity will come out of the reactor and will be dispersed into the wider environment. So in order to prevent this, the reactor vessel needs to be intact during all the time of operation. So after one year, the Belgian regulator said that following all the tests which they have done so far, the reactors could restart again, but at a condition that some additional tests meantime would be done. And it are the results of those additional tests which showed that instead of 2,000 cracks in the Tiaja 2 reactor and 8,000 cracks in the Dual reactor, there were over 3,000 cracks in Tiaja and over 30,000 cracks in the Dual reactor. So they discovered now that there are much more cracks. And so based on this, those two materials experts, of which one is a Nobel laureate from Berkeley University, USA. The other one is a material expert from the University of Leuven in Belgium. They both said that their theory is that those cracks could be caused by hydrogen going in steel of the vessel 
and forming there the embrittlement of the vessel steel. And so for the very first time, the problem was discovered in 2012, but it's only very recently, three years, three days ago, that material scientists stated very clearly that the origin of the problem could be something that is present in all the reactors worldwide and not only in those two reactors. This Belgian experience, does this suggest that the safety of every nuclear reactor on the planet could be significantly compromised? Indeed, and of course, the older the reactors are, the more vulnerable they are for... And that was Eloy Glorieu, energy campaigner for Greenpeace Belgium, on the line from Brussels, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. This year's three-day East African Community Summit enters its last day today, with heads of states expected to decide whether or not to admit stable but shaky Somalia and troubled South Sudan into the five-nation regional bloc. James Shimangula caught up with some of the ministers and sent us this report. Most of the ministers I spoke to emphasized that Somalia and South Sudan should solve their internal problems and restore lasting peace and stability before they are admitted into the five-nation regional body. The Nairobi EAC meeting comes at a time when Tanzania and Kenya are embroiled in a tourism tussle. Recently, Kenya banned Tanzania-registered tour vehicles from entering Jomo Kenyatta International Airport as well as the country's national parks. According to Tanzania's Minister for East African Community, Harrison Mwakembe, the tasso is being handled diplomatically by the two countries and may not come up during the heads of state meeting. Today, Friday, the summit is expected to decide whether or not to admit Somalia and South Sudan as member states of the five-nation regional bloc. But in an exclusive interview with the Uganda's Minister of East African Community Affairs, Shemu Bagaine, Somalia and South Sudan are not likely to be admitted in the ESC. Bagaine discloses reasons that prevent the ESC from admitting the two countries. We had uh, selected a team from the partner states to go and carry out the verification exercise. Unfortunately, because of some uh, problems in Somalia, the team could not go. And until it goes, we cannot proceed. South Sudan, we concluded the verification and they made the criteria for joining the community. We were moving to the second stage, which was the negotiations with them. Unfortunately, misunderstandings arose in the country, uh, which were uh, set back. We are still waiting until they are clear, then we can start the negotiation. Concurring with the Ugandan minister's remarks on the unlikely admission of Somalia and South Sudan into the ESC was his Tanzanian counterpart, Harrison Mwakembe. Our decision-making in the East African community is consensus. We sit down together and we come to conclusion. We are looking at those applications and uh, we shall treat these applications with the respect, with the seriousness they deserve. I'll be very comfortable as an East African, as a Tanzanian, to see Somalia and uh, Southern Sudan improve their security situation before joining the East African community. Kenya's participant in the ministerial conference of the summit, Abdi Ali Abdi of the country's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, wants the ESC to give time 
to the two countries to stabilize. Still, uh, I don't think it will take process, but South Sudan is different case from Somalia. A bit Somalia is a bit okay. And now uh, they are somehow stable. There's African Union there, peacekeeping. Uh, the Somali government is at least improving. It's not bad. Joining is not something you can easily rush with. The Nairobi summit also attracted dozens of university students from member countries of the ESC. They attended the summit to familiarize themselves with the ESC proceedings. One of them, Angale Fundisha, a student pursuing a Bachelor of Arts in Public Relations degree at St. Augustine University in the Tanzanian town of Mwanza on Lake Victoria, echoed the same sentiments expressed by ESC ministers from Uganda and Tanzania. I think they should wait because right now we are looking towards a political federation of the five countries. It will be a problem if they won't wait because we don't know their political situation. It's better for them to wait until we know if they are really at a peaceful environment. That was one of dozens of university students that attended the Nairobi East African Community Meeting to familiarize themselves with the ESC proceedings. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Luhuku. Ethiopia's coffee has been ranked the best in the world by an international group of coffee experts. Not surprisingly, coffee is a top export from the country. But at home, it is a source of pride. International coffee experts travel the world to find the best tasting cup. They keep coming back to Ethiopia where importers say the climate produces quality coffee beans. Before international experts taste, coffee beans go through analysis in small coffee labs. Mine expansion plans for companies in Zimbabwe and the growth of the crucial industry are now under threat because of continued depressed metal prices and spiking government demands for more revenue. Zimbabwe has vast mineral riches spanning gold, platinum, nickel, chrome, diamond and coal among others. These minerals have attracted global investors such as Rio Tinto, Anglo-American Impala, Platinum and Metallon Gold. Kenyan manufacturers are cautioning of a rise in prices of some commodities between this year and next year. This as the government moves to implement the last phase of taxation reforms prescribed by the IMF. The Treasury says it intends to complete the review of excise duty and value-added tax in ongoing reforms that started in 2011 as agreed with the International Monetary Fund. Among the impending taxation reforms, the manufacturers have indicated that there are plans of introducing an inflation-indexed excise tax and elimination of VAT exemptions on all petroleum products in August next year. Angola's Minister of Trade, Rosa Apagavira, has presented the new commercial license to the national businessmen and members of the provincial government of Huila province, which will simplify business. At the presentation ceremony, Pakavira said the new license will allow the activity of retail and wholesale, forcing the latter to leave the urban areas. Huila province has 4,538 shops, from which 818 provide market services, 2,928 retailers and 792 wholesalers.
Namibians might have heeded calls by the central bank to curb excessive unproductive borrowing but have been slow to react. Bank of Namibia Governor Ipo Mbushimi says a decision by the bank's monetary policy committee to hike the repo rate by 0.25 to 6.25% was taken to contain persistently high growth in household credit. Overdrafts and installment credit grew by 23.8% and 1.9% respectively over the last six months. Indicators, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.61 South African rands, 9.48 Botswana Pula, 6.95 in Zambia, 0.64 British pound, 0.87 euro, gold, 1.206 dollars, platinum, 1.164 dollars an ounce, brand crude, 6.0 dollars, 62 cents a barrel. This is an economic update. Economic update. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Msibudi Makur. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with football news, FIFA presidential candidate Luis Figo has proposed a 14-team World Cup should he be given the role of president. The former Portuguese winger is challenging Sepp Blatter, Dutch football chief Michael van Prague, and FIFA vice president for Asia, Prince Ali bin Al Hussein, for the presidency. On Thursday, Figo unveiled his manifesto in London. His plans include more non-European teams and and two tournaments of 24 played simultaneously in two different countries, with the top 12 in each playing the final knockout stage. Figo also wants changes made to the current offside rule and plans to donate half of FIFA's wealth on grassroots football in member associations. The FIFA presidential elections will take place on the 29th of May. South Africa's national under-17 team came from behind to draw 2-0 with Mali in their second game at the African Youth Championship in Neme, Niger on Thursday. Amajimbos were trading 2-0 at the break, but Bidvitz with striker Luvuyo Mkashana and Katlejo Mohame of Supersport United hit back in the, 40s, in the 74th and the 81st minute respectively to... Um, draw the tie. Head coach Mlefenteke says they didn't start the match well. The plan and the preparation for this particular game, I think it worked out very well, except for the fact that uh, we conceded very early. And uh, when you look at our play in the first half, we're a bit tense in terms of expressing ourselves on the ball because that is our strength. And uh, our movement was very limited because of a high pressure game that they were putting on us, especially when they're trying to play from the back. So I think um, that. Uh, got us on the wrong foot, but uh, as time goes on, the confidence came back to the players and we started playing as a team. Nsega's charges opened their account at the tournament with a 2 old draw against Cote d'Ivoire at the Municipal Stadium on Monday night. He says they got too complacent in their first match against the defending champions and the same pattern was seen with Mali on Thursday.
That's what led to us to concede two goals against Ivory Coast. Because um, when a team is two, down, is two goals down, like I said in our previous match, normally what happens is um, the team, the other team that is leading becomes too cautious. And when they become too cautious, the other team is throwing everything at them. And that's exactly what happened uh, against Ivory Coast. And uh, today we, 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 we could see that uh, towards the end, we're having, uh, we're having a leeway on the left. Uh, the left back, we turned him to be a left winger and he was, he was coming more often coming from the left. And as a result, we realized that uh, we have a chance of putting uh, their defense under pressure. And it really happened that way. When, the first goal we, when we scored the first goal, it came from a set piece. And I think uh, that's what got our confidence back. And from there, we kept on pushing harder until we got that corner kick. And from that uh, resultant corner kick, we got uh, an equalizing goal. South Africa will play their final Group B match against Cameroon at the General Senye Kokeche Stadium on Sunday. Meanwhile, South Africa's senior women's team, Banyana Banyana, will take part in the annual 12 Nations Southwest Women's Cup, which runs from the 4th to the 11th of March this year. The Virapal coach side has been drawn in Group C together with Belgium, the Czech Republic and Mexico. Group A is made up of Canada, Italy, South Korea, as well as Scotland, while Group B comprises of Australia, England, Finland, as well as the Netherlands. The team assembles for camp on Sunday, and the final 23 women's squad will be announced on the 24th of February and the team departs for the showpiece a day later on the 25th of February. And finally, in golf news, PGA Tour regulars and Ryder Cup Star Wars Sergio Garcia rather, and Praging Harrington has, were excited by the news yesterday that Darren Clark was named Europe's 2016 Ryder Cup captain. The 46-year-old Clark was one of the three contenders for the job, along with Spain's Michael Angel Yames and Thomas Bjorn of Denmark. Clark says he's honoured to be announced the captain of the Ryder Cup team. Try to to pick off as much information uh, as I can from all the previous captains. I think it would be very remiss of me if I didn't do that. And then you know, at the end of the day, um, it's not about me. It's about it's about the players. It's about it's about the team. To try and make sure that the team has uh, an enjoyable week, which is which is quite difficult in a in a stressful atmosphere, is what the Ryder Cup is. Those are your sports news out of the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Security experts from Cameroon and Nigeria meet in Yawunde. And four women and nine children have been released by LIA rebels. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine for this week. From myself, Lulu Gabu. Our producer, Pumuzura Magaza, technical producer, Revelina Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us and follow us on Twitter at RiseShineAfrica. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Kanda Bongoman with a track titled Liza. Is a good, 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 is a good
Design. 